going to throw you off this morning. We're in uh, Philippians. We've been in Matthew for some time, and the, but this morning we will look in the book of Philippians for our uh, message today, Philippians chapter 2. And as we do that, I want to note we're thankful also for uh, Sister Carla Kolak, who operated the keyboard, as you saw. She does a lot of things around here. As members know, she's like an Army Swiss knife. <laughs> an Army Swiss knives have multiple purposes and uses. Got a knife, got a can opener, got a number of other things. So we're grateful to her uh, faithful uh, service to this local assembly. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I'm using as a subject for these verses in view of uh, the season, Christ before Bethlehem. The story of Christmas did not begin with the angel's announcement to Mary. It did not start with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. The Christmas story did not begin in time. In fact, it began in eternity. And it began with an attitude of humility. It was an eternity where we see the attitude behind the great miracle of the incarnation of the Son of God. The words of our text ones I've just read you, are part of profound Christological truths that are found in Scripture. But Paul did not pin these words solely for their value in the doctrine of Christ. He also wrote these words to teach the kind of attitude that Christians are to have toward one another. The kind of attitude that Christ had toward us. Believers are to have the same attitude as our Savior. He is our model. Verses 3 and 4 are exhortations here of to selflessness and humility. One of the phrases in verse 3 in particular says, empty conceit. Those two words are saying we're not to be engaged in pursuits of personal glory. Rather, we're to look on the interest of others in the body of Christ. And there is no one who is a greater example of looking out for the interests of others than the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in our text. We see the, the downward movement of Christ to take care of our needs, our interests. 
What's fascinating uh, about this, we see it in steps as he makes the downward movement to meet our need. We have to see to begin to be held. And I want to begin with the first heading, the preeminent place he enjoyed. The preeminent place he enjoyed. You'll see in verse 5, there is the word this. Monstrative pronoun this points back to the preceding verses. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That word attitude, for now, is the word in the original. It means, obviously, to think, to have thoughts. The word attitude could be rendered because of um, its structure, uh, form in the Greek text. Keep thinking among yourselves. This attitude is to be habitual. Uh, our attitude toward our fellow Christians is to be habitually like that which Christ had toward us. It's an attitude of selflessness. It's an attitude of humility. It's an attitude of looking out for the interest of others. Who in the text, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, the question ought to come to the mind, our mind, oh, this attitude which was in Christ Jesus, when was it in Christ Jesus? When did he think like this? Well, he thought like this in eternity past. This is, to me, is startling. This verse tells us that it was in eternity, in his pre-incarnate existence, that he thought like this. He was enjoying the preeminent place. He was at the most exalted place. In fact, he is God. He is the creator. And he's thinking like this. That Paul would zero our attention on him, Christ, before he became a man. He thought like that. He had this attitude of selflessness. This attitude of humility. He's God, remember? And that's how he thought. This is profound stuff. As I've thought about this over the years, and particularly this past week, it just hammered home in my heart how profound this is. Christ before Bethlehem. He had a preeminent place in heaven. With him being who he is, think about it, he was surrounded by worship. The seraphim, the cherubim, cherubim, all those who redeemed who were there prior to his coming, they worshiped him. He had an attitude, the same attitude that we're to have that are recount, that is recounted in verses three and four. Have this attitude yourselves. That same attitude was in Christ Jesus. Now, as we begin to unpack this, when he had it, which was in his pre-incarnate status, we said uh, there are four words. Four words in the Greek text that give us an exalted definition of the person of Christ. It's good to know how far he came down when you know how high he was. 
verse 6. Who? The reference, of course, is to Christ who? The antecedent, of course, is Christ Jesus in the previous verse. First word we want to look at, existed. There's another word we'll look at, form. The third word will be equality. And the fourth one will be grasp. Just look at this first one, existed. You'll notice in the text, who, although he existed in the form of God, ex- let's take out that word ex- existed as I mentioned a moment ago. Huparakon is the word in the original. Huparakon, it denotes prior existence. The term clearly implies a state of existence prior to the point at which our Lord took upon himself humanity. Prior to the time he took upon himself the nature of a bondservant. This word existed uh, is present active. It means continuous. So there is this continuous existence uh, in this, this state here that he is talking about as God. This is the preexistence of Christ. His eternal preexistence. He has always been. There never was a point when he wasn't. Because he's eternal. And he had this continuous existence in the, notice, the form of God. Our next word, form. Morphe is the word. And morphe, we have some English words, morphology. We have another word, morph. These are derived from this Greek term, morphe. Here, morphe, or a form, refers to the nature or essence of something. Further, it's a, it means the outward manifestation of inward reality. In his preeminent place that he enjoyed, his form, the reality of who he was, was manifested throughout all of heaven. Every created being there saw him for who he is. Saw him clearly as God. His nature, his essence. His attributes, his perfections, his God, all of that was on display, the form of God. Is this innate being that was displayed continuously in eternity. But then, of course, because of who he is, inspire the worship of those beings that I mentioned a moment ago. J.B. Phillips translates it this way, what we're talking about here. He who had always been God by nature. End of quote. Now, now think about it. You know, a lot of times human beings, they like to uh, <laughs> let people know how important they are by name dropping. You know, so-and-so and I were, oh, you know him? Oh, yes. I'm going to tell you something about the one who came here. We had a preeminent place that he enjoyed. John 1 1. 
in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word was with God. What, what that tells us, th that middle line there in John 1.1, 1, 1, is that there was this eternal face-to-face -face communication between the first and second persons of the Trinity. Talk about name dropping. For all eternity, I, I was face-to-face -face with God the Father. You can't get any better than that. During his incarnation, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You say, whoa, what is that meaning? Here's the deal. When he said, before Abraham was, I am. He took the name of God, I am. Also, that means that he didn't change when he became a man. During his incarnation, his essential being did not change. He was still the I am. His essence, Morphe, and it can never change. It's the reality of who he is. The next word that defines the person of Christ his exalted position, his preeminent place that he enjoyed. You see it in our text. In verse 6. And did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality with God. I-S-A is the word in the original. It's an adverb and it means the manner or way of his existence or form of God, how he existed in his preexistence. Equality means exactly equal. Equal in number, size, and quantity. That's the idea of the word, and that was the word the Spirit of God chose for Paul to pen so we could understand the absolute equality of Christ with God the Father. Christ was equal to him in every way. To specify, he was equal to him in honors, glories, and divine prerogatives. Whatever glory the Father had, the Son had. Whatever honors the uh, Father had, the Son had. Whatever prerogatives the Father had, the Son had, because he's equal to him. You can't be equal to God unless you are. What's fascinating about this? What, what is profound about this and what ought to really uh, rivet our attention and really move our hearts with gratitude and love and awe? That he is all of that for all eternity. He's occupying that exalted place that has been his by right because after all, he is deity. But you know what the text says? Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't consider it something to hold on to. In fact, an alternative translation is this, quote, to regard something to be taken advantage of. David McLeod says this, quote, his equality 
the honors, prerogatives of deity and all of that, being equal with God did not mean taking everything to himself, but just the opposite, giving everything away. He saw at this exalted place, I am the one who can meet the need. The pre-existent son regarded equality with God not as excusing him from the task of redemptive suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that vocation. Wow. He says, I'm going to do it. You know why? Because of his attitude. His attitude of selflessness, his attitude of sacrifice, he's in heaven enjoying, enjoying worship, praise, exercising the prerogatives of God, the rights that God has. And yet, he's saying, you know, I'm going to leave here to go down there. Think about that. You know, may I apply it? We are not up there. We come down. We're all on the same level. And we, what we should be doing is what he did who was up there but came down here. See, he had a long way to come. We don't even step down. We just step across. You, you understand what I'm saying? This was Christ's pre-incarnate thinking. This was Christ's attitude. His choice in eternity before he took human nature. And what Paul wanted the Philippians to understand and what he wants us to understand by extension is to know that the humble, self-giving, self-sacrificing behavior of Christ on earth merely displayed what he has always been like. In other words, Jesus didn't become a servant when he got here. His thinking was already as that of a servant. the preeminent place he enjoyed. The next heading is the lowly place he accepted. Notice verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Hmm. People like upward mobility, don't they? Uh, we we want to move up the corporate ladder. We want to uh, move up the social ladder. Upward mobility. Uh, like the Jeffersons. George and Wheezy. <laughs> you, you know, they were moving on up. An apartment <laughs> in the sky. Moving on up. They, they, they'd made it. They arrived. 
the, the Jeffersons. And that, that's the way people think, basically. Uh, they they want to improve their circumstances. They're moving on up. Jesus Christ just did the opposite. I guess we could compare him not with the Jeffersons, but with the people in good times. Come on now. <laughs> I mean, they, they were poor people. You see, Jesus would have been not like the Jeffersons, but he was like the people who were on good times. downward mobility with the attitude he had we can see why he would empty himself now let me tell you right away instantly dismissed from your thinking if you're thinking this way that emptying himself meant he was divesting himself of his deity because that is absolutely utterly untrue that can't happen that's impossible that would mean he'd, be, he'd cease to be God, and that can't happen. That would involve a change in him, and he cannot change. The immutability of God precludes such a thing. He is God, always will be God, and that can't change. God is essential being. The form of God, as we saw, cannot change. He is always the same in his eternal being, and I'm glad about that. Because that gives stability to our life. It gives stability to all that God's promised. That means it, we'll get to heaven because he's not going to change. You ruin the possibility. Of course, Scripture, in delineating the reality about the attributes of God, one of them, the immutability of God, we understand a number of texts in the Bible teaches this glorious reality about the person's of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one in particular speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm going to turn over there. If you want to turn over there, you may. Hebrews chapter 1. And in this chapter, among other things, it demonstrates the uh, superiority of the Son over the angels. In fact, it's God the Father calls God the Son, God. Verse 8, I'll just throw this in. Hebrews 1.8 but of, his, of the Son, he says, the Father speaking, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice, he calls him, O God. The Father says to the Son, O God. If God calls you God, you are? Say it loud. Don't be ashamed. You grin with God, the Father, Right? Yes, second person of the Trinity. But my point here, I, I'm, I want to say that so you know who he's talking about and to whom. You need to also know what he also says about him. Beginning at verse 10, Hebrews 1, And you, Lord, drawing from the Old Testament, applying it here, uh, the writer of Hebrews is to Christ. 
in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands talking about Christ they will perish but you remain they all will become old like a garment and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment they will also be changed but notice but you are the what in your years will not come to an end. The immutability of Christ. <laughs> we can't say that about ourselves because all of us, our years are coming to an end. <laughs> the immutable Christ. He is the same, unchanging. He didn't empty himself of deity. Impossible. Can't change back over in our text here we're looking at the Christmas began we notice again it says but emptied himself that denotes taking a lower status Alec Motyer puts it like this it is not of what did he empty himself but into what did he empty himself End of quote. Christ, consciously, willingly, notice what the text says. Taking the form of a bondservant. Doulos is the word. He's taking the form of a slave. A slave, people. Remember the first heading, a preeminent place that he enjoyed. He consciously, willingly emptied himself, that is, he took the form of a bondservant, our slave. A slave in the Roman uh, Empire meant deprivation of rights. Christ stripped himself of all rights and became a doulos, a slave. Willingly he did. When you think about Christmas and when you think about the manger scene, remember when you think about him, yes, as Christ the Lord, the Christ the Lord who became a slave. It's amazing. He took the lowest place. He went from the highest place to the lowest. That's what the text is teaching us here. You see the word form? In verse 6, it's the form of God, morphe, theol, right? Here, same word, form. Christ actually became a slave in the fullest sense. He just didn't act like he was one. He was one. He essentially, essentially, he was a slave. That's what he did. You can even see it um, acted out in John chapter 13. You can see the reality of him being this that way. John 13. 
the night before he was crucified. John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, notice verse 4. Got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to watch the, wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Look at that. That is the eternal sovereign God in human flesh washing the feet of his creatures. Imagine Simon Peter thought, whoa, 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 this is just too much. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered to him, what I do, you do not realize now. But you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter said, I reconsider. He said in verse 9, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. My point here is that Jesus took the role of a menial slave. They're the ones who washed the feet, the dusty feet of people who had walked the dusty streets of Israel had come in, in this case, for the celebration of the Lord's Supper or the Passover, which be the Lord's Supper transformed. They wouldn't wash one another's feet because they were too high. And here's the one who was high who came low and washed their feet. He took on the form of a slave. Now back in our text we can continue to see this do understand his manner of living changed but he was the same person you remember uh, perhaps you do perhaps you heard of Mark Twain's novel The Prince and the Pauper it illustrates that a change in circumstance does not change the person let me give you a little uh, synopsis of the main part of the story Tom Canty remember he was a young beggar he lingered outside Westminster Abbey hoping to catch a glimpse of the uh, Prince of Wales, Edward Tudor. The fact is the two boys looked exactly alike. And they began to joke and exchange clothing, of course. But the game ended when the guards mistook uh, the prince for the beggar and drove Edward Tudor, the prince, out into the streets. Both boys were still the same. Tom was still Tom, the beggar, poor beggar. Edward Tudor was still Edward. But each had exchanged a, his mode of existence. Tom now enjoyed the prerogatives of royalty, but Edward the poverty of a beggar. So too it was with Jesus Christ. He never ceased to be the divine son. 
Yet he gave up the riches and prerogatives of heaven for the lowliness of poverty and of life in Palestine. That's what he did. Notice verse 7 ends, and being made in the likeness of men. Likeness. There is similarity and distinctness. Jesus was fully human, but in some respects, Respects, he was not exactly like other human beings. One, he was virgin born. None of us qualify for that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says he, he could not sin, he, or he was sinless. In fact, he couldn't sin, he didn't have a fallen nature. Jesus was also fully God. No other human being is both fully human and fully God. So he's not exactly like us. He is like us, but not exactly. Being found in the likeness of men. Preeminent place he enjoyed, the lowly place he accepted. Let's look now here at the next point, the next heading, the absolute abasement he endured being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Appearance as a man. He was recognized as a man by those who saw him. That word appearance is schema. It refers to outward shape or form. People looked at him and thought that he was just merely a man. They were really wrong. He was more than that. But all they could see was the outward appearance. And you notice he humbled himself. Ah, to the very lowest place. He humbled himself before men and God. Think about it. The Lord Jesus was arrested at a trial and crucifixion. He was mocked, falsely accused, spat upon, beaten with fists, and had part of his beard plucked out. Yet he never became defensive because he humbled himself. Becoming obedient, the text says, to the point of death. There's something that needs to be said about this. This is a profound statement. You can read that and miss the significance of it. Ralph Martin, he's a commentator, and he helps us really grasp uh, what is being said here when it states this obedient to the point of death. Martin writes, his obedience is a sure token of his deity and authority. For only a divine being can accept death as obedience. For ordinary men, it is a necessity he alone, as the obedient son of his father, could choose death as his destiny. And he did so because of his love, a love which was directed both to his father's redeeming uh, purpose and equally to the world into which he came. Remember Jesus said, I come to do thy will. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7 and following. In fact, Martin says, was that verse was the motto text of his entire life. I come to do thy will. How far did he go down? 
even to death on a cross. The most cruel, excruciatingly painful and shameful form of death. The cross. Think about the descent, brothers and sisters, from heaven, the preeminent place that he enjoyed, to the lowly place and submitted himself to the abasement of death on a cross. Talking about serving. Talking about selflessness. Jesus Christ embodied it to the nth degree as he bore our sin and paid. The ultimate objective of the Christmas story it's really not about shepherds. It's really not about gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's certainly not about a Christmas tree. Oh, that's nice. The baubles are nice. The lights are nice. But the real issue is he came to die for our sins the redemption of sinners. And he did that because of how he thought. He had an attitude of selfless service to meet our greatest need, the redemption of our souls. Praise God for the reality. And we thank him for what he's done for us. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you uh, this uh, morning for the privilege of exploring your word and seeing the marvelous condescension of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, and putting Christmas in a more sharp and sharper perspective from your point of view. And may we rejoice and worship you and him as we contemplate over these days during this holiday season who our Christ is and what he came to do may we have deepening joy at the fact that we have our sins forgiven and our souls saved because of an attitude that our Savior had in eternity past and acted upon it. These things we give you glory and praise for. Whom at this hour who's without the Savior will see his immense value and beauty, preciousness, and come to him for the salvation of their own souls. And we pray these things in his holy name. Amen.